interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. The question is, um, granted uh, what John says about uh, Jesus being both God and a human being, uh, why did the disciples, not to mention all the rest, have such difficulty accepting Jesus as both God and man? Um, why was there something in the culture that made it so difficult to, to swallow that? Uh, after all, Muhammad came along six centuries later and denied precisely that point and thought that Christians had got it wrong. Um, wh- why was that one such a, a hard one to swallow when it has become such a crucial point in the confessions of the church ever since? Um, well, f- first, um, the thing that I was trying to say pretty often was not that the, that the Christians had a hard job swallowing Jesus' deity, the first disciples. I don't think that, that was the hardest thing for them at all. I think the hardest thing for them to swallow was that he would be a suffering Messiah. You see, they expected a Messiah who would be king. They expected a Messiah who could be great. And there was some dispute amongst them about just how great he would be. After all, Isaiah already predicts in chapter 9, for example, for example, 7th century B.C., uh, 8th century B.C., 700 years before Christ, already predicted one who would come in David's line, who would be called the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And so there was some dispute among the Jews just about how wonderful he would be. Now, it's true that the Jews were monotheists, but they read the Old Testament and saw some of these strange angel of the Lord passages and some of these extravagant uh, Davidic promises. I don't think that the problem was confessing Jesus' deity nearly as much as confessing that the one who would be in David's line and the conquering Davidic Messiah, who would have the power to oppose all enemies, would also be a suffering servant. That was the big stumbling block. And as for uh, Islam, um, in fact, Muhammad rejected both, both points. But he was, he was not demonstrably ever exposed to general confessional Christianity. He was exposed to Nestorianism, which was one of the early heresies that bred in North Africa. And he found at least as much umbrage in the notion of Jesus' substitutionary death. In fact, um, he did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead and did not believe that Jesus actually died on the cross in order to pay a sacrifice for sin. So that in Islam, the way of being accepted before God is by uh, obeying God, submitting to him, um, uh, obeying the five, uh, the, the five uh, fundamental principles of Islam, submission. That's what Islam means, and so on. And thus there is no substitutionary sacrifice to pay for sin in that whole heritage. It really is profoundly a works righteousness, even though all is attributed finally to Allah, the all-compassionate. And, um, and, 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 and so um, I, I don't think there's a very good record that, 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 that uh, Muhammad ever was exposed to Orthodox Christianity. He did not like the Nestorianism he saw. And um, he insisted, therefore, on a form of monotheism that was simplex. What Christians really say is that God is one, all right, but there is a complexity in God that should not be too surprising, granted what the Old Testament says and granted what we know of Jesus. 
So, <clears throat> so I guess I would shift the level of uncertainty from, <clears throat> or the level of mis miscomprehension, uh, away from the deity of Christ. Uh, there was there was there was some uncertainty and ambiguity and, and 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 slowness there, but nothing like the slowness that was bound up with 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 their inability to come to terms that the one who was the Davidic king and was to be worshipped as God and who could be confessed as Messiah as as Peter does and the twelve do at Caesarea Philippi would also be the suffering servant. Thus, in Caesarea Philippi, in, Ma <clears throat> in Matthew 16, when, when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says, um, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood is not revealed as to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Don't think for a moment that Peter at that point meant by Christ exactly what we meant, what we mean. You see, we cannot use the word Christ without thinking of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, risen, and so on and so forth. But he didn't think that. He thought the anointed Davidic king. The anointed Messiah with power. He had no category for Christ who was suffering servant. So therefore, in verse 21, when Jesus goes on at that point, the first of five times in Matthew, where Jesus explicitly says, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things, he must be crucified on the third day, rise again, and so on. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That was an oxymoron. A crucified Messiah was like boiling ice cream. It was a contradiction in terms. You know, if you were in science faculty at McGill, to speak of a civil engineer was an oxymoron. And a crucified Messiah was... <laughs> it's all right, they had their insults for us too, do you see? And, um, and, uh, and, and a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms, you see? And, uh, and, uh, and, and that, that, that blindness, it seems to me, is, is part of, of the inability to come to terms with a God who would actually do that to buy his people back. It's a failure of imagination to think that God would love us like that. Despite what Old Testament texts say. Yes. Yes. Well, that's a very good question. Um, a number of things. You see, there, there are the suffering servant theme runs through several servant songs in Isaiah, and 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 the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is transparently various people. At one point, Cyrus is called God's servant, and in one or two passages, it really seems as if Israel is God's servant. But when you get to Isaiah 53, the language so far extends beyond. Israel, that it's hard to believe that the reference is just to Israel. Moreover, there is, there is in the Bible a whole Israel typology that is the true Israel, the ultimate Israel, the true son par excellence that does not fail, turns out to be Jesus himself. So various things that are said of Israel are said eventually to be transparently true of Jesus himself. So even today, many Orthodox Jews think that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is, in fact, referring to Israel. Others think that it's referring, believe it or not, to Isaiah himself or to somebody else. Now, the trouble is that if you take it to refer to Israel, you necessarily have to think of it in very metaphorical terms or loose terms. You know, he made his, 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 his grave with the rich and he was wounded for our transgressions and so on. I mean, you really have to stretch the language very hard to get, to, to get that to refer to Israel. But nevertheless, that is what is done. And, and some people just didn't understand, too. I mean, how many of us 
for all of our years in the church, would really say we have a really full grasp of all those Old Testament passages. Did you, did you see? So we, there are some passages that we return to again and again and again, and some that we haven't really integrated very well. And in the first century, a lot of Jews had integrated pretty well passages about the tabernacle and the temple and those about the Davidic king. They just really hadn't integrated very well the passages about a suffering servant or about the coming of the Spirit and a renewal a, a covenant. Those passages were not integrated well into their thinking, as is shown by, in fact, first century sources. Yes. Uh, the question was, um, Jehovah's Witnesses tend to take John 1.1 1, 1 to mean, uh, in the last clause, and the word was a God. Um, what, how to answer, what other passages might there be, and, and so forth. It, it, it depends a bit on, on which Jehovah's Witness I'm talking to. In Greek, the, the, the text says, Thos ein halagos, literally, God was the word. Um, but because there is no article, the, before Theos, before God. That's why they say, since there is no indefinite article in Greek, they say that this must be rendered as a God rather than the God. But in fact, Greek syntax, that is the way words are ordered in Greek sentences, means that when that word comes at the beginning of a sentence like that, it doesn't take the article even though it is definite. It really does have to be rendered the word was God. I mean, they, they just don't know Greek syntax. Now, I've had any number of Jehovah's Witnesses come to me with interlinear Greek and start pointing out, you see, there's no article there, and so on. What I what I do, it's quite naughty of me. What I do is I give them my Greek New Testament with no interlinear, and open it up at random and say, read any part of it. I've yet to meet one who can. And and so I say, look, you don't know what you're talking about. In all fairness, you really don't. You've bought into a package of goods. If you want to sit down with me, I'll give you 20 minutes of half a dozen major grammars to show how this really doesn't understand. You really don't understand what you're talking about. You, you've been sold a, a bill of goods. Now, obviously, not every Christian can do that, but that, that's what I do. Now, the, the, um, but, but there are other passages, too. But the, the, the interesting thing is that many of the passages um, are, are distorted in different ways. At the end of John's Gospel, you see you have, you have Thomas then saying in 2028, my Lord and my God. But most Jehovah's Witnesses understand that to be. Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus, and he says, my Lord, my God. And I want to say, does the resurrection of Jesus call forth blasphemy? And in fact, what Jesus says next after that, after he says, my Lord and my God, it cannot possibly be merely an exclamation. Because Jesus then goes on to say, you have seen and therefore believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. That is down the road, down the road and yet who still will believe. You, you, you see, to, to argue that this means simply, in this context, believe that I am alive, and nothing more, after he said something like that, is astonishingly thin. And, and then you come to a passage like Colossians 2, 7 and 9, passages like that. Most of our versions say something like, um, uh, in him the, the, the fullness of the deity lived in bodily form, or something like that. Their version says, uh, in him were all the attributes of deity in bodily form. So, when they show me this translation, which is a bad translation, but even so, work with it, and, and say, okay, which attribute, therefore, of God does Jesus not have? You see, the one they want to say is absolute eternality, because they think that Jesus was created, that he's a lesser God. But, but eternality is an attribute of God. 
This says all of the attributes, in your own translation, all of the attributes of God are there in bodily form. All of them. So you're contradicting yourself, aren't you? I mean, if you have an animal that looks like a horse and smells like a horse and has all the attributes of a horse, you've got a horse. You see? You start taking away some of the attributes of a horse, I'm not sure what you have. But your own text says that, that Jesus has all the attributes of deity. If he has all the attributes of deity, what on earth are you doing taking one or two of them away? What right do you have to do that? You're contradicting your own translation. And every time I've said that with anybody, they have always said something, well, I'll have to go away and talk to our leaders and see what they have to do. I mean, it really doesn't stand up, but, but, but there is a whole, you know, array of, 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 of chatter you go through in all of this. Um, it, it, what they will say to that is, um, is, yes, but in chapter 17, Jesus prays that we may all be one. But that doesn't mean that we're sort of merged or that we're supposed to be, in some sense, one even with God himself. That doesn't mean we become God. I mean, the, 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 the oneness can be talked about in different ways. Now, I would say, yes, 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 but it depends on the context. And I mean, Jesus also says, I and the Father are one, and he who has seen me has seen the Father. John chapter 14. Well, you know, uh, that's pretty spectacular. They want to take it in some lesser revelatory sort of way. So, so in my experience, at least, such discussions normally prove fairly futile at the time. That is to say, um, most committed Jehovah's Witnesses have a certain mindset that is so narrow and direct that it, it is hard for them to escape it. But many, many go through for a while and then become disillusioned for some reason. Some reason in the organization or the time demand or the exegesis begins to pile up on them or, or, or whatever. So you keep poking, you keep poking. But where Jehovah's Witnesses are more likely to get converted is where they're becoming a bit disillusioned at the other end. And then to show them compassion and reason from the scripture and give them other books to read. And you do sometimes see them genuinely converted at that point. There's a recent book by a woman called Anne, Anne with an E, as an Anne of Green Gables, Anne, 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 can't remember her last name, Conway, I want to say, called um, Fearless, Fearless Love, or something like that, an introduction to Jehovah's Witness. She's a converted Jehovah's Witness herself. It's a brand new one, and it is one of the best. It's very good, because as a converted JW, she is, uh, she's thought these things through. And so far, it's only published in Britain. Uh, but I'm sure it'll come out here in due course. You, you could, I'm sure you could get it on the web by a little hunting around. If you're desperate, uh, send me a note and I'll dig out the reference for you. Yes. Yeah, Would I comment on the text, there is no one good but God? The question, does Jesus say this in order to insist that he is therefore not God and bad? or to make them think through what they are saying by referring to him as good. See, by itself it's ambiguous, and you can only judge that the rightness of, of your answer by other things that, that, that Jesus also says. The same Jesus also says, which of you convicts me of sin? Uh, if I said that, you know, there would be lots of enthusiasm around. Uh, but, 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 but Jesus can say that with a straight face, do you, do, 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 do you see? And he has no consciousness of sin. And then also, Jesus presents himself as the one who forgives sin. Now, that's really remarkable. 
Do um, you, you remember the, the, the man who was paralyzed, who was lowered uh, through a roof because of the, of, the, uh, of the press of the people? He comes down, he's dropped in front of him, and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And everybody's aghast. Now, the reason, of course, is, is because of the inappropriateness of a human being to forgive anybody else's sins when they're not against him or her. I mean, supposing, God forbid, your wife or your sister were raped. How would you feel if I went to the rapist and said, I forgive you? Wouldn't you say, you don't have the right. It wasn't done against you. One of the most moving accounts of the Holocaust that I ever read was by Simon Wiesenthal, the great Nazi hunter. It's, a, it's, a, it's an essay called The Sunflower. And he describes how he is brought into a dying SS trooper's uh, bed uh, while he is still a prisoner, just before he is moved to Buchenwald. And, uh, and the trooper asks him for forgiveness. And Wiesenthal won't give it to him. He walks out. And then this generates long, long debates and discussions. And the question really is this. Who has the right to forgive the Nazi but the Nazi's victims? They're all dead. Therefore, there is no forgiveness. Do you see? You understand a certain kind of logic to it. And wouldn't it be obscene really, to pronounce forgiveness and absolution from one human being to another when the sins have been done against a third. But the Christian answer to that is really quite different. I mean, the, the whole debate, you see all of the categories in, in the ensuing debate with experts brought in from around the world in this very moving book, uh, Wiesenthal's Sunflower. <clears throat> the, 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 the heart of the issue was never really discussed from a Christian point of view. <clears throat> from a Christian point of view, all sins are first and foremost done against God. Thus, David um, commits adultery and murder, and yet he has the cheek to say in Psalm 51, <clears throat> in his address to God, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, at one level, that wasn't even true. At one level, he'd sinned against Bathsheba. He had certainly sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Joab, the head of the army. He had sinned against the covenant people. He had sinned against the covenant. I mean, there was scarcely anybody he hadn't sinned against. Sinned against the baby that was conceived in, in Bathsheba's womb. Um, and yet there is a profound sense in Scripture in which all what makes sin hideous, what makes sin odious, what makes sin most foul, is not simply the betrayal of other human beings, although that is bad and everywhere denounced, but ultimately the fact that it is betrayal of God. It is rebellion against God, our maker. All sin is first and foremost against him, which is why ultimately sin has to be forgiven by him. That's why when Jesus comes along, therefore, and this chap is dropped down in front of him, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. The Jews look around and says, who can forgive sins but God alone? Hang on, that's the point. You see, e e either Jesus is, 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 is speaking for God at that point, or, in fact, um, he's stupid beyond words. I mean, he, he, he's he, he, a megalomaniac, perhaps. Or, uh, certainly, a, a person with a, any ounce of ethical noose. Or, or he is God. 
Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that all of the answers to every text are found only in the, the immediate. I mean, it, 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 the text is to be read within the context of Matthew and Mark, where, where it occurs. And yeah. I think that the, the impact would be on them. Why do I call Jesus good? What am I saying? What do I really make of him? Do, 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 do I therefore ascribe sin to him or not? What are the bearings? In other words, not all texts are first and foremost um, information giving. Some of them are, to use speech act theory, performative. That, that, that is, they're, they're, to, they're to elicit a certain kind of, 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 of response, of, of, of reflection, of action, of thinking. And, and I think that that's the function of the text. That is, it, it's, it's supposed to make the first person, plus the reader today, think, what on earth is going on here? That's exactly what it's supposed to do. But it's not, supposed, it's not meant to give all of the answers right away. Just as some of the parables are meant to blow up people's worlds. Some of them give answers, but some of them are meant simply to blow up people's worlds and make them rethink. I think that there is a fair bit of Jesus' teaching that does that. Yes, the question is, I, I alluded today to election, or to uh, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. And some people seem to think that the church is a group of elect people, of chosen people, and others, uh, well, there's a scale all the way down to those who deny it absolutely. What do I think? Is that a fair um, summary of the question? Yes? Next question. <laughs> Actually, you, you just pressed my button. Uh, my, my doctoral dissertation was on that subject, and I've written... A, a couple of books that just deal with that with that subject. So the, the, my problem is, you, you, you know, you you no no you you, you ask that question and you're you're in danger now of having pressed my button. So I just wrap it on for the next 45 minutes and nobody else gets a break. Um, l let me mention a couple of things. If you've never read anything in the area, there's a little book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. That's well worth looking at. If you want to look at God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the sort of broader framework of human suffering and election and a number of things together, I wrote a, a popular level book called How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. And chapters 11 and 12 deal with that there. Now then, let me summarize what I think Scripture says on it. Uh, the, the trouble is to justify this would take more time than I've got now, but let me summarize in two points. Point number one. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way as to mitigate human responsibility. That's the first point. The second point is like unto it. Human beings are responsible image bearers of God. By that I mean they believe, they disbelieve, they obey, they disobey, they choose, they become hardened, whatever. They are responsible human beings made in the image of God. But their responsibility never, ever makes God absolutely contingent. In other words, it never threatens his absolute sovereignty. Now, I would want to argue that both of those things are everywhere taught in Scripture. Everywhere. If you ask, wait a minute, Don, haven't you now just given me a whole lot of codswallop here? 
a built-in contradiction, then I would say, no. If I defined it in terms of God's absolute sovereignty and an absolute free will, then you have a built-in contradiction. I have not defined it that way. I have defined it in terms of God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility. The question is whether human responsibility is finally grounded in an absolute freedom of the will. And I deny that. I think that scripture teaches that human responsibility is grounded in what the philosophers call voluntarism. That is, you're responsible because you do what you want to do. That whole way of looking at things is called compatibilism. In other words, I think that a Christian who comes to terms with what the Bible says on this area really ought to be a compatibilist. Let me give you one text. Oh, two texts. I've warned you you were pressing my button. It's your fault. Let, 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 me, let me give you two texts but by way of illustration. One is in the Old Testament. One is in the New. In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. There you have the brothers of Joseph coming to him after their father is dead. And they're afraid now that he's going to take revenge on them. And he is rather broken that, uh, that they sh should think in these terms. And he rebukes them in effect and says, who am I? Do I stand in the place of God? He says, in, in, in the messy events in which you sold me into slavery, he says, God intended it to me for good. You intended it to me for evil. Joseph was a compatibilist. Notice, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, God was away that day on a walk, sleeping perhaps. You then sold me down into slavery while he wasn't looking. And then he made it turn out pretty well at the end because he's a better chess player than you are. And so he you know, met your moves with counter moves. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, God had intended to have me down in Egypt in a chauffeur-driven limousine, but unfortunately you guys mucked up his plan and beat him to the switch by selling me down as a slave. No, no. But rather, in one and the same event, God intended it for good, but you intended it for evil. Now, how you can work that out philosophically, there are whole treatises on that. I... I think that there are ways of showing how there's no necessary built-in contradiction. But I think that's pretty common. L let me tell you where it's most important, where this is not just a theoretical issue, you know, for theologians to debate over. It takes you eventually to the heart of the cross. Come to Acts 4, especially 27 and 28. In that sort of context, um, uh, Peter has just... Uh, He's just been faced the first whiff of persecution and so on. And he goes back to the praying church, and the church prays in terms of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the nations, uh, the nations uh, triumph against the Lord and his anointed? Um, but the Lord shall have them in derision. He will laugh at them in his anger and so forth. See? And, then, and then Peter goes on to explain the text. Or the, Jew, or the Christians, rather, in their praying, go on to explain um, that, that text, Psalm 2. Indeed, they say, Pontius Pilate and Herod and the, the rulers of the Jews gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. They did what your will had sovereignly determined beforehand should be done. 
Now, on the one hand, the text overtly says that they conspired against your holy servant, Jesus. On the other hand, it says they did what your sovereign hand determined should be done. If you take away either of those verses, you destroy the cross. If you say that when these wicked people who corrupted justice, in fact, did what they did, they were not to be blamed because God was sovereign in the event of the cross. Well, if people, because of God's sovereignty, are not to be blamed for what they do, then there is no sin to be paid for. In which case, you don't need the cross. In fact, the text won't let you get away with it. It says they entered into a conspiracy. They conspired criminally. On the other hand, if you say that God had other plans for Jesus, all happy ones with nice endings, but in fact, the leaders of the day, because of their conspiracy, put Jesus on a cross, then you are saying the cross wasn't God's plan. Then you can't make sense of the whole sacrificial system or Isaiah 53 or a text like Revelation that says in God's mind he was sacrificed from before the foundation of the world. In other words, I think that a Christian, just looking at the cross and understanding it, has to be a compatibilist. Now, when you try and work that stuff out in people's lives, when it works out pastorally, I would want to argue, the way to avoid getting into pastoral problems is by refusing to draw the wrong inference from certain truths. Always ask yourself when there is something about human responsibility, what do the biblical writers infer from it? And when you find a passage about God's sovereignty or about God's uh, predestination or something, always ask what do the biblical writers infer from it? And you make sure you infer nothing more. Because what happens is people sometimes draw inferences that go so far, unwittingly they start contradicting the other side, which, which is to contradict some of the givens. You can't do that. It's not fair exegesis. You see? So, God is sovereign. What do people infer from that? God is sovereign. He predestines things. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm not responsible. I'm just an automaton. Do any of the biblical writers ever infer that? Never. What do they infer? Well, they infer, for example, in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purposes, so we can trust him. They infer, for example, that salvation is really all of grace. At the end of the day, I'm not going to be able to get to heaven and say, hey, I got here finally because I made the right choice. Poor bloke next to me didn't make the right choice. That's his problem. But I'm here basically, well, I know it's by grace, but I mean, at the end of the day, some of us have to receive and some of us didn't. I've got one boast that is valid for all eternity. I made the right choice. Nope, nope. Paul says, where is boasting? It is excluded. So what shall I draw from the, from the human inference side? You know, Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I must infer from that that I have an obligation to choose the Lord, to lead my family in the right choice of the Lord and use that language happily. Shall I therefore further infer God is gone to sleep at the switch that day and leaves it entirely up to me? The biblical writers never say that. They will say other things instead that contradict that, like um, God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, the way those things must function in your life, pastorally, personally, is to let them function in your life the way they function in Scripture. Now, you've just had about 30 hours of systematic theology in 10 minutes. 
If you have indigestion, I don't blame you. Yes. A fair point, but it seems to me that you've only quoted a selection of texts. There are other texts that will increase the confusion and then give clarity. Uh, you, you, you see, Jesus does say in chapter 10, for example, of this book, verse 34, he actually says, if you don't believe my words, then at least believe me because of the works, of the signs, of the miracles. So he does see that there is an evidentiary value in the signs. The trouble is, it seems to me, that that signs can function in several ways. And because, because of that, he answers different people in different ways. Um, when some people come to him and say, show us a sign and we'll believe, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign and no sign shall be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's the passage you're referring to. That's Matthew 12 in parallels. Now, what's going on there? There are some people who want a domesticated Jesus. Um, am I allowed a personal story here? It takes it, 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 it away a bit, but um, um, I have a daughter at university now in town here. But um, uh, when she was about grade uh, seven or thereabouts, she lost her best friend to leukemia. And um, it was pretty traumatic. She was grieving pretty well and all the rest, but it was a very, very tough year for her. And I went into her bedroom several months later. She, she grieved well in all kinds of ways. But, but I went into her bedroom. I could hear her crying in her room. I tapped on the door and I went in and wrapped her up in my arms and said, Tell me about it. She burst into tears and she said, Daddy, God could have saved my friend, but he didn't. And I hate him. Now what do you say? Well, what I said was, uh, look, I'm so glad you've told me. And you might as well tell me. I mean, God knows what you think in any case. No point in hiding it from him. I'd rather you tell me than not tell me. And moreover, you're not saying much more than some of the psalmists say when, when they're really kicked in the teeth. Or Job comes pretty close to that, too. You know, you, you know, you're not really saying anything too extraordinary. But before you're absolutely convinced that God's got it in for you, you have to ask yourself two questions. First, do you want a God who is just like the genie in Aladdin's lamp. Can do absolutely anything, very powerful. But ultimately, completely under the control of her holds the lamp. Or do you want a God who's so big that sometimes he will do stuff that you don't understand and you certainly don't control him? And the second question is, before you become too convinced that God doesn't love you, you always have to stand beside the cross. You lost your friend. God lost his son. In fact, he gave his son. The place where you find your faith stabilizes to whether or not God loves us is on a little hill outside Jerusalem, not by your best friend's bed. Now, the reason I tell you the story is because I think that a lot of the sign thing comes down to a kind of genie view of God. A, a domesticated God who can do wonderful things, but at the end of the day is at our beck and call. If, if I come to Jesus and say, as in this passage, in fact, John 6 that we were looking at today, um, look, you provided the food yesterday, do it today and we'll believe you. What am I really saying? 
What I'm really saying is that no matter how great the miracle from yesterday, unless you do it on command, on my command, to serve my interests, at my beck and call, then I disavow you. At that point, do they see it at all? Well, at one level, they do see it. They have seen it. At another level, they don't see it. They don't see the true significance, or they wouldn't say something half so daft. And, and, and the, the real problem is that if you start saying, go ahead, God, I'll believe you. There, there's this brick on the floor. Make it come up six feet, six and a half feet, let's say, and hold for 30 seconds. And then on command, let it fall. And I'll believe that you really are who you say you are. Go ahead. So he does it. Will that make a Christian out of you? What it's likely to do is up the ante so that tomorrow you've got to ask for something bigger. And then the next day, something bigger. And sooner or later, God himself becomes a trained monkey doing tricks. And who's in charge? On the other hand, that does not mean there is no credibility-enhancing function to miracles. So, for the right person in the right place, as Thomas, unless I put my fingers in the wounds, I will not believe. Jesus appears through closed doors and says, Touch me and see, and do not be faithless, but believing. In other words, in certain contexts, Jesus does provide that evidence. He provides it in the case of a Gideon. And then he withholds it in other cases precisely because he sees that what is at issue is a kind of manipulative control. That is what is going on here in John 6. He's just done something spectacular. Do they listen to him truly, therefore, and say, what is this bread of life? What is the significance? Do we bow before? This is a work of creation. What, what, what kind of allegiance should this give? No, no, no. They want to manipulate him still, which shows they do not understand at all. So in that kind of framework, then Jesus can say to people, no, 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 no. You're not going to get any sign except the sign of Jonah, who preached righteousness after coming back from the dead. And then even then, Jesus can go so far as to say in another context, even if someone came back from the dead, they will not believe. In other words, miracles can have evidentiary faith-enhancing value. They do not guarantee any evidentiary faith-enhancing result. And so some of Jesus' answers, it seems to me, are precisely those sorts of peculiar um, nuanced things that you would get when you see how people can see and not see, or can look at evidence and twist it. It's pastorally shrewd, and, and it, it, it fits into a wholeness of thought only once you understand the pastoral situation in every case. Does that make sense? I think that's what's going on. Yes. The question is, um, this lady has heard arguments to the effect that the reason why September 11 occurred is because we have so abandoned God or squeezed him out that this is really an act of judgment um, upon us as a nation. Um, this lady says she doesn't agree with that, but doesn't, doesn't know how to respond. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, we're probably all aware of the fact that um, certain well-known um, uh, public um, preachers um, blamed homosexuals uh, feminists, uh, abortionists, and assorted other um, people. 
And uh, although it was all embarrassing, and eventually they, they backed down, in one sense they were right, in one sense they were wrong. It's complex. You see, what you have to do is come to grips with Old Testament passages like Habakkuk or Isaiah 10. Start with Isaiah 10 and 5 and following. There God says through the prophet to the Assyrians, you're the battle axe in my hand. I will send you against a disobedient nation. He means, in fact, against the Israelites. Uh, to tear down and destroy. However, he said, after I've finished using you as a carpenter uses the tool, I will turn again and discipline you, because you think you're doing this all by yourself. You say, is not Jerusalem like Calno and Carchemish, cities that they've already beaten up? Therefore, after I've finished using you as a tool against my people, I will hold you responsible for what you've done. Now, there's again divine sovereignty and human responsibility, too, incidentally. Now, the interesting thing there is that God sends a nation which is demonstrably more rapacious and more sinful, and which God will hold to account, against his own covenant community to discipline them for their sins. That's what Habakkuk is complaining about. Read the book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. Why Habakkuk's got a headache? He's really upset. Is because God is using a transparently more iniquitous nation by all public accounts to beat up his own people, which Habakkuk recognizes are sinful. But they're not as sinful as the Babylonians or the Assyrians. So why is God sending them against a less iniquitous people? But God does. Partly because there is also a question of degree of responsibility. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and following. He says that, that Capernaum and Bethsaida will face it worse on the last day than pagan cities like Tyre and Sidon because they were exposed to more of the gospel. Now, of all of the nations of the world, what language group, what cultural group has had most gospel exposure of the nations of the world today? I'm not speaking of necessary medieval times or earlier times. Or at one point, the church was strongest in North Africa. Let, let, let me tell you, you know, the, the English language has far more books and resources and commentaries and spiritual, uh, spirit, spirituality books and prayer and, uh, than any other language, much more than German or French, let alone Swahili or Kikuyu. And have we cherished this heritage? We've preserved it and grown in it and grown in godliness? Well, I would still want to argue that America is a far, far, far better place and more just place than most of the totalitarian regimes in the world. On the other hand, we've managed to kill millions and millions and millions of babies by crushing their skulls. We've done that. conclude there is no such thing as objective evil. And God's not going to hold us accountable for that? One of the things that September 11 has done is reintroduce the category of evil into the marketplace of discussion. That's not all bad. I don't think it's a very profound analysis that we're getting in the media, but there is at least some discussion of evil. You know, that's not all bad. And, and, and so it, it's important to see that God may be working at several different levels when he's, when, when he's doing these sorts of things in, in the culture, you see, and, and not shy away from the, the kinds of things the Bible says about, about God's public works of providence to bring a, a nation again to repentance and faith. 
Yes. Um, you see, virtually all analogies uh, between God and human beings, precisely because you're dealing in the domain of analogical language, forces you to think through where the comparison is and where it's not. It cannot be exact, for a start. God is eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, and so on. So God's got all kinds of attributes. That when you start drawing analogies between God and us, inevitably, there are some distinctions as well. Analogical language is not the language of precise identity. It's analogical language. So you always have to ask the question, where is the parallel to, to, to be drawn? And in John's Gospel, the oneness of father and son revolve around two or three foci. First, the father loves the son and the son loves the father. How that works out is a bit different from passage to passage. We spent some time on that yesterday. The father loves the son and determines that all should honor the son even as they honor the father and so on and so on. The, the son honors the father by perfectly obeying him. But there is a perfection of love. There is also a perfection of will and direction. You don't have two gods. Christians are not ditheists or tritheists. There is one God with a unanimity of will and purpose, which is precisely why Jesus in the agony of Gethsemane prays, not my will, but yours be done. You see? So, what kind of oneness do you also, all, also, also ultimately get then amongst Christians, first of all, on the last day? In some measure, achieved now, but perfected on the last day. They will love each other perfectly. And there will be a oneness of will and purpose. Now, in some measure, that's achieved already now. E even in, in this, in this uh, a church. I mean, this is not a hugely diverse church because, because it's Ithaca. I, I was in a church in, in other words, it tends to be a small university town. But I was in a church, for example, in, um, in, in Queens a, a, a few weeks ago. And in that weekend, I personally spoke to people from 30 to 35 countries. There was no stereotyping. I met a black guy right out of Rikers who had been in for drugs, just converted. I met another black guy who was head of internal medicine in a nearby hospital. I met a white guy who was son of a mafia don, just converted two years ago. I met another white guy who was head of a big business firm. I met Japanese and Chinese and Koreans and, and Hispanic. I mean, it was a wonderful a church, you see. What on earth holds that lot together? It's not common interest. I asked the pastor, how, how is this going down here? I mean, you, you, you know, what's holding all this diversity together? He said, I don't know. It's just the gospel. I said, well, how, how has it come to pass? Me mechanically, he said, well, every once in a while when I see that for our culture, we're, we're down a bit on the Japanese side, I pray that the Lord will convert a few extra Japanese, but he, he, said, he said, I read all these books about how I'm supposed to go after a particular identity group. He says, I just go after one group. I said, what group is that? He said, sinners. And, and so actually you had a church there that was reflecting the community in spectacular. And I want to ask, what holds that group together? It's the gospel. They love one another. They develop a unity of purpose in the gospel, just as the Father and the Son have a unity of purpose. Just as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. And, and so ultimately the very oneness of God in the oneness of the triune love relationship and the perfection of purpose is also supposed to be mirrored in the oneness of the church, which will finally be consummated on the last day, and the oneness of the people of God with the whole purpose of God in all eternity. And thus, the triune God himself becomes a kind of model, 
and it's an analogical model, but a model of the oneness toward which we should be pressing.